again, good morning. I'm very pleased to be able and allowed to preach to you again this Lord's Day. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of our service, that this will be a second series that we will be going through uh, parallel with Matt's series, The Walk Through the Bible. Um, He's going through the Bible one by one on a high level or a macro level, while I will go more down into the details of of Mark uh, in the same way that we went through the Gospel of John recently. And uh, so Matt's sermon series will have precedence. We will more often hear him preach. He's our pastor after all. And uh, I will preach on occasion through Mark. And uh, in this first sermon in the Gospel of Mark, I, uh, I want you to, sh- to look at the, the bulletin and the uh, last page. Um, there's an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. So we usually have this melodic line, which uh, is a way of saying the, the melodic line consists of the important themes of the book or passage. And uh, as a symphony, uh, there are themes that go, that come and goes, and you can notice that, oh, that's the theme of spring, or that's the theme of that person, and he comes into the picture now. And so it is with uh, this term, the melodic line that we use, that this is something important in the gospel, and it, it goes through the gospel as a red thread, if you will. So the melodic line of Mark is, in my interpretation, Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as messianic king, and he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples. And um, here's a brief outline of the book, and I encourage you to look through that uh, on your own time, um, and also the literary structure for your own, your own benefit. And here in this first sermon series, Sermon of Mark, uh, we will look briefly at the introduction to the gospel, and then I will look at the the foretaste of Jesus' message of the kingdom of God in three points. And I've titled my sermon, Prepare the Way of the King. Prepare the way for the king, of the king, for the king, uh, two different versions, but that's fine. And in laying this preparation for the king out, we will look at four things. We will look at an introduction, a brief introduction to Mark itself. And then the prophecy of the king is now fulfilled, looking at verses 1 to 3. Then the message of repentance and forgiveness is given, given in Jesus, looking at verses 4 to 13. And then the kingdom is repentance and belief, looking at verses 14 to 15. So the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. In this series, we will see definitely and clearly that this is not the Gospel of Mark in the sense that it is not about Mark. Of course, here it has the according to meaning, that it, the Gospel according to Mark. This is what Mark has, has testified about the Gospel And according to the early church fathers, uh, such as Papias, a writer, and and also of Irenaeus and Eusebius, 
The Gospel of Mark was a trans transcription or collection of material, mainly from the Apostle Peter. Um, Mark, there's little to no question that Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark, and he got he structured it and he knit it together as a whole based on Peter's testimonies and words of Jesus. So Mark, or John Mark, was a Christian scribe. He was a com companion of Paul and of Barnabas, who, Mark Barnabas being Mark's cousin. Um, early on in the gospel era, they went on a mission trip together, but uh, for some reason that uh, is not given specifically in the gospel in the Bible, that Mark went home. He d he left Paul and Barnabas and were not traveling with them any longer. And this felt this led to some disagreements. As, well, the Bible, the Bible says that it led to sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and so they split ways. Um, Later, though, we can read uh, about Paul urging Timothy to bring with him Mark, because Mark could be would be useful for him, and that he was a, to be admitted to the Lord's table. So we can see that although Paul had a problem with Mark leaving them initially, Paul later invites him back in, and so there has been some sort of reconciliation has taken place, and useful. He turned out to be as he compiled what is now known as the Gospel of Mark, and there is great certainty of this in church history. Peter calls Mark his son, maybe as a convert or maybe just a beloved younger Christian in the faith, maybe a convert, but at least a beloved helper. And Peter spent most of his time, or much of his time at least, witnessing to people in Rome, And it's there most likely that the gospel was actually wrote, written down, or at least uh, given to Mark. And uh, probably written in the mid to late 50s, or up until the mid 60s. So 50s, 60s, that range is estimated to be when it was written in Rome. And uh, the most plausible audience to the, birth, to the book was first and foremost Christians in Rome and then spread with the winds to other people. In AD 64, so 64 after Christ, Anno Domino, uh, the emperor in Rome, Nero, uh, historians believed, believe, set fire to Rome. So the emperor set fire to his own capital, to his own city. Uh, motives unclear, was a madness maybe, was it that he wanted to clear some space so he can build something new? Maybe, probably both. But um, he didn't want to bear the blame himself because it led to a large portion. I think more, I've heard somewhere between 50 and 70 percent of the city, but don't quote me on that, was destroyed. And I can only guess to how many lives were lost in that great fire. They put it down, but then it started up again mysteriously. And uh, Nero needed a scapegoat. And so he pointed to the Christians, and blamed that the Christians must have set fire to Rome. And that led to much persecution there. And uh, as punishment, uh, the Romans and Nero used the Christians in much gruesome ways. 
involving fire and feral beasts, which I will not go more into detail with, but they were killed in horrible ways. And the passion of Jesus at the end of the book of Mark then allowed persecuted Christians to find some semblance of consolation that even their their Savior suffered and ultimately suffered for them and also for us. Uh, a pastor I know, uh, well, knew ago, a while ago, jokingly said that the Gospel of Mark is almost like a sports commentator watching a football game. Um, the ball's there, the ball's over there, he's coming over there, he's passing over there, he's tackles, like everything is just snappy, snappy, snap. I'm not sure if I agree with the description, but I see what he's getting at as the Greek word euthus, meaning immediately or straightway or at this moment is used 42 times in the gospel and uh, now is used even more. And so there's, the, there's this using of words to connotate a, a rush. It's now it happened, it happened there. Immediately he went out, he did that, healed, preached, that happened. So Mark is not going to give us long descriptions nor necessarily chronologically what happened, but he aims for clarity to show that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's the Son of God. And he used no, he did, he used no time with much deliberation and background information as I have done this morning to help us set this up. He immediately got into the message. And so we will now follow him into the book of Mark and see what God wants us to know through the gospel according to Mark. My first scriptural point then, or my second point, touches verses 1 to 3, and it's called, The prophecy of the king is now fulfilled. The prophecy of the king is now fulfilled. The book, open up, the book opens up to Mark. That's maybe the first thing that you'll see on the page. Mark. Or in Greek testaments, it only says, according to Mark. Not gospel according to Mark, but just according to, to Mark. Because we will get the gospel. That is the message. And it is the message according to how Mark put it, puts it. Um, some people have said that the four Gospels are like four witness testimonies. They have all seen the same thing, but they give focus to different things based on what they saw, what they caught, or what they felt that this is important. And uh, so it's not Mark's message, but it's Jesus' message, and it's Mark's writing of it through Peter then. The first point and the second point, as if we look in the outline, Provided, It's a part of what I've called the prologue. It's the introduction. A prologue is often used in, in drama plays, and it is addressing, addressing the audience by an actor uh, in the beginning of a play like, this will be blah, 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 blah. So this is the prologue of Mark. He is going to tell us what this play, if you could say, is about. Because the Gospel of Mark is, in a sense, a bit of a mixture of a documentary, just stating facts, stating words, stating places, stating people, just giving facts, and also almost like a drama play. Like, there's 
a story to it, and there's a urgency to it, and there's a, it's action-packed in a sense. It's, there's something playing out before our eyes in the gospel. And it is fitting then that it is Mark that gives us the opening. The good news of the Son of God initiated. And he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And it could not be, be clearer. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. And as it was written in Isaiah, or other translations might put, might put not necessarily in Isaiah, but in the prophets, well, not just to say verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but maybe say, as it is written in the prophets. Because when the Bible was, before the book came about, the book printing and writing, they used scrolls. And they would usually write the big sections on, on the top, and if they had more room, they would write other stuff on the, on the end. So they would sometimes have the prophet of Isaiah on a scroll, writing, 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 and folding. And then on the lower end, they would write other minor prophets. So some say that this is according to the prophets, mostly Isaiah, because he, he is the biggest part of it. So like, can you give, bring me the scroll of Isaiah? But in so also you get some of the minor prophets. But... Uh, because the citation is not just from Isaiah, but it's from Isaiah, and it's from uh, um, blanked. I'll get back to it. Um, it says uh, that prepare the way, because the Lord is coming, so make his path straight. And uh, here we see that um, the messenger was to be sent before the Lord, God, and his messenger would prepare the way for him. And then, as we see, the beginning of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Everybody knows what gospel is, right? Well, let's look at it a little bit anyways. The word is from Old English, as in goodspill. It is from good, meaning God. No, 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 sorry. Um, misunderstanding is that it's actually God but it's good. So it's good and spell, which is news or story. So it is the translation of the, of the Greek or Latin, evangelium, to, from the Greek, euangelion, Greek, so Greek, euangelion, Latin, evangelium, and then in Old English, good spell. And it basically means good news. Gospel is often used as a noun, the gospel, as in the gospel of Mark, but it's most used, most used and most powerfully used as just a term for good news. And uh, Mark here is about to introduce this good news. And what is it? The good news of or the good news about Jesus. And we in this year of 2022 have the good luxury of having the whole Bible to us, we can look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can read about 
Jesus, see who he is, see, read the explanations from other authors in the Bible. But the first readers of the New Testament were looking um, at it and not having that much information. And before the New Testament was written, while they were living in that inter-Testament period, like between the Old and the New Testament, they were looking for a Messiah that would come. Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title of Jesus, if you will, or Christos, meaning the anointed one, the chosen one. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah, Messiah. And it means basically the same thing, the anointed one, the chosen one, the appointed one. And in biblical times, anointing someone with oil in some way was a a consecrating or a sign of setting apart a person or something, a vessel or equipment for a particular role. And in the time of the Old Testament, people were anointed most, well, the basic things and the most important things people were anointed as were the positions of prophet, of priests, and of king. Prophet, priest, and king. Elijah anointed Elisha to succeed him as Israel's prophet. Aaron was anointed to be the first high priest of Israel, and Samuel anointed both Saul and David as kings of Israel. And we will get into all this through our walk in the Bible. And numerous places in the Old Testament we find prophecies speaking about an anointed one, like in singular, that one. Uh, Messiah, who will reign in righteousness and rule in justice. In uh, two places in Isaiah, I will read them here for you in chapter 42.1 and 61.1. So 42.1 and 61.1, well, 1 to 3. So 42.1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And this will come up later in the sermon as well. And then Isaiah 61. 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, of the, of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening up of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the, God, of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61, 1-3. And this is the gospel indeed, that a Messiah would come. And in ancient Israel, through their Messiah, thought that he would be a, he would come with military might, or he would be a powerful ruler who would deliver them from their enemies. Because they had been under captivity from pagan and wicked nations and kings for years and years and decades. Uh, Babylon, uh, Rome, to mention some of them. And uh, no wonder then when we read a few places from the Old Testament of one who shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42. He would build up the kingdom of God and a house for God's name and cause his people to rest from all their enemies 
and that his throne would be established forever. Second Samuel 7. He would save Judah and let Israel dwell safely. Jeremiah 33. All kings would fall down before him and serve him. Psalm 72. He would have the spirit of the Lord upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge. Isaiah 11. So it's no wonder that they thought that a strong figure, a ruler, a military leader would come and set them free from this, this Messiah who would, who would bring in the kingdom of God to make the house of God and make them rest from all their enemies. But as, as it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Quoting ah, Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. So 43. So Malachi 3.1 was the one I blinked at in earlier. But before this anointed Messiah can come and restore Israel and defeat their enemies and make them dwell in peace for eternity and the house of the Lord will be built and all the kings will bow down before him, one has to come before him and make straight the, the path. There will come this messenger who will prepare the way, crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And Mark spoils the surprise of who it is in the beginning as he says that it is Jesus who will come. And this preparing the way and making the path straight is main, meant to make a, like a highway or a great road for the arrival of a majestic king. Because a majestic king can't tread over a mountain and uh, a, uh, like a procession, a kingly procession. It would be more beneficial and more easier and more fitting to walk on a straight path. So we have read that all hills will be made low, all valleys will be filled up, all unevenness will be straightened out, and so that the king can come unhindered. Prophecies have been made, and we can read numerous places in the Old Testament. And one thing I'm looking forward to in the the series that Matt, Pastor Matt does, is that we will read about all these prophecies and all these promises to Israel about the anointed one who will come. Because in the Old Testament, we will get glimpses of God's plan for his creation and his people. And so seeing more fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus has fulfilled it all. But as we go through the Old and the New Testament, we will, we will understand more of what actually took place. And having been included in the promises of is to Israel through Jesus, we too are partakers of the general promises of God. Jesus is our ultimate king as well. And so we live in the house of the Lord. We will enter the rest from all our enemies. We will have a ruler who will be forever. And we will then dwell safely in his divine kingdom one day. And until that day, let us also, in a sense, prepare the way for the king, for Jesus, preparing to live in that kingdom. And what could that preparation look, for, look, as, look like for us? Um, what preparation can be done? Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for us to have eternal life. He died for us, and he was raised to life, and in so doing, completing what is called the great exchange so he taking someone something from us and we getting something from him. 
he took upon himself the responsibility and the punishment for our sin while we got the righteousness and holiness of him accounted to us. He was crucified for our sins and we received his righteousness by grace. The righteousness needed to be worthy of the kingdom and we got it as a gift because he loved us so. And in light of that, we ought to discern how we live. Or do you not know that your, temp- your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 That preparation happens in our hearts. The gospel is never about me first, but we always pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not mine, not ours. Our lives can be lived joyfully and only ever at its highest peak when we live according to our highest purpose. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end, as question one says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are not free agents to do as we please if we want to please the Father. As Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And thankfully, as Paul says in another place in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, we should work hard, though not us, not we, but by the grace of God that is with us, who enables us and helps us in this preparation for the king so trust in god in the holy spirit to change us and to bring us into new life my second point then looking at verses four to three big bulk which i've called the message of repentance and forgiveness is given in jesus the message of repentance and forgiveness is given in jesus verse four and reading, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country um, of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one, comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we have this figure, this hairy man, almost wild looking, I imagine, like a barbarian. He appears outside of Jerusalem. He is dressed in camel's hair, like skin from a camel, like leather and the hair. And he has a leather belt that he has it all tied up together with so that's how he, he's dressed and um, mark doesn't give much detail to this figure so nor will i but i will borrow a little bit of the gospel of john which we have been at at this point there we see that our text also says that he was a bit of a phenomenon <laughs> i was messed that word up all the country of judea and all jerusalem was going out to see were going out to see him he's baptizing people unto repent for the forgiveness of sins and in John, we can see that the Jews sent priests and Levites to ask who he is and by what right he is baptizing. 
because all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. And uh, they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, no. What then, Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, then who are you that you can baptize people? Who do you think you are? And he answers, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Attributing that prophecy to himself, that he would be the preparator, if that's the word, to the Lord that would come. And in 2 Kings 1.8, it speaks about a prophet dressed in a garment of hair with a leather belt about his waist. And he is Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah, Elijah, Elijah first, Elijah comes after Elijah. He was also clothed in leather with a belt and he was the great prophet. And uh, so he put his anointing on Elisha eventually. And um, John says that he's not Elijah and he was not lying. Although Jesus later explains that John was Elijah in spirit, that he had the anointing of Elijah. He would come in the office of Elijah. So he, John, was the Elijah that would come before the Messiah would come to the Jews. And he came baptizing, the text says, offering a ceremonial washing. This type of baptism was generally used in the Jewish community to accept proselytes, uh, new converts as Gentiles coming into Judaism. But for a Jew to undergo this baptism, it was essentially saying, I, though being a Jew, I am so far out from God in work, deed, or thought that I am counted as vile as a Gentile in some sense. And so I need to be accepted in again into the covenant, into faith to God. I need to repent because so bad am I that I should be almost treated as a Gentile. I need to ask for forgiveness And our text says the droves of people, like lots of people, came to see him and to be baptized. And it was not a general, you are a sinner, you need to repent kind of message. It was that the the Messiah is coming. He is on his way. I'm crying out in the wilderness to straighten out the path for him to come on. And this one who comes after me, I am not even worthy to stoop down and loosen the sandals of his feet like the sandal straps. And in John's time, a rabbi, a teacher, one who would take on apprentices for uh, law and the scripture, he could ask his followers to do much anything, like, you will cook food today, or you will go and do that errand for me, you will bring me those books or whatnot. And he could essentially ask for almost anything, but he was never allowed I don't know if his tradition or whatnot, but he was never allowed to ask the follower to stoop down and untie his sandals because they were so dirty. And in most cases, only the slaves were fit to loosen the sandals or themselves, of course, but they could not put anyone else to do it forcefully. But here John says, the one who's coming after me, I am not even worthy to untie his shoes I baptize with water, water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. My baptism is ceremonial, showing to something, 
his baptism will be effectual, actually, actually doing something. And in verse 9 in our text, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in, by John in the Jordan. And when he came out up of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And there, that's, that's it. That's what Mark gives us. Mark speeds through this encounter. Some of the Gospels, they, they give so much detail to this account. But Mark just, he came, he was baptized, and God called from heaven. And Jesus left. I think we need to unpack this a little bit more. It's not that Mark doesn't care about this event, but he just wants to get straight to the point. And the thing staring us in the eye, after what I've said already by proselytes coming into faith, and Jews needing repentance from their sins, their sinful life, and now Jesus comes wanting to be baptized by John. Wouldn't that make him view himself as a sinner or be his sinner himself? Our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, Chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator, that's a, that's a chapter, Chapter 8, Point 2 says, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, uh, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirm infirmity of Thereof, So, God, Jesus, equal with the Father in the same substance, would, when the time was right, take upon himself the weaknesses and the infirmities of being a man, a human. Um, yet, without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, but without conversion, composition, or confusion. So he's saying that Jesus has two natures which are inseparable. We cannot point to that finger is God and that hand is man, jokingly, but we cannot say that that anger was divine and that necessarily, it's not easy to see, okay, what part is divine and what part is human. But the confession and the creeds said that, say that Jesus was two natures simultaneously, perfectly, not mixing them, and not being able to distinguish them from each other, but they were both there. So, Jesus is without sin because he is God, and by so being holy, he cannot sin. I, I will give a reference later. Um, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator, mediator between God and man. And this is building on Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he did this, many commentators say, to be identified with sinners. Uh, and others say that that was his anointing as a prophet. Um, but Mark obviously saw no problem with Jesus being baptized or else he would have given some instruction, he would have given some teaching. Oh, don't worry, he's not a sinner, because, well, 
No, he just says he was baptized. And then we see that immediately uh, God approved of it. And God could not have approved of it if Jesus was sinful. Um, a commentary, Brooks, says, Mark evidentially saw no problem with Jesus being baptized. Mark's primary purpose in recording the baptism appears to have to be to show divine approval of Jesus. Jesus then immediately comes up of the water um, and uh, he experienced three things. The heavens opened up before him, the spirit descended upon him, and the father spoke to him. And all these things show that Jesus, what Jesus did was right and good and and that the Father was well pleased with him for doing that and doing everything else that he has done up until then. And then he indeed is the greater one than John, the one who would come. Isaiah 61.1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The word used for rend here, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, it's the same that is used later in the story, the, gospel, the passion story when Jesus is crucified of the covering of the holy, most holy place in the temple. I don't know if you can remember, but it says that when Jesus was crucified, that was torn apart from top down. It was just, and that is, that is a thick thing, like wool, heavy made. It was made to endure, but that was just rent down the middle. And it's the same word used here that heavens were rent open, how it was, how it looked, we can only imagine. But it's powerfully to say that, geez, that God came with his majestic might to say, this is my son, and he's my beloved son. <coughs> Sorry. The heavens are torn open, the Holy Spirit descends upon him visibly. The Gospel of John records that John saw it, and God's voice can be heard. You are my beloved son, which with you I am well pleased. And what a shock it must have been for those who stand rather than, than hearing. <laughs> there would be no question, though, that Jesus is special. We have had four witnesses until now. That Mark says that he, this, Jesus is the son of God, verse 1. The prophets said that Jesus is Lord, verses 2 to 3. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah, uh, no, as, as the mighty one. 7 to 8. <coughs> and God the Father said that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. What more evidence do we need? Verse 12 then. And I'm closing on my f- second point. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. After this dramatic appearance of the Trinity, Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. There he was 40 days, being identified with sinners in their temptations. As Hebrews 4.14 reminds us, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 40 is often used with testing or judgment. Think of the flood in Noah's time. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years before 
coming on as the prophet or the lawgiver. This is Jesus' time of testing. And with the wild beasts, no less. But Jesus, unlike the first Adam who sinned in the garden, a paradise, Jesus withstood the temptations while in a desert. Even though Satan's like in another place, can't you just turn some stones into bread and eat that? But Jesus withstood the temptations of Satan. And when the time was at end, the angels ministered to him. Maybe you, maybe I, no, we definitely from time to time in our lives need to turn away from sinful behavior in our lives. Not that we need to find a guy that eats insects and wears a pelt for clothes. Not that I think there are many walking around here with that kind of clothing. But we do need to repent on a frequent basis. This is God bringing uh, to our memory sinful ways, sinful ways we need to depart from. He is cleansing us like silver, cleansed time and time again to get away all the dredge. Like silver is heated up, the dredge floats up and is taken away. And the Bible speaks several places of that happening seven times to us by God, being a symbolic thing. And take heart, because our Savior, who is very God, is with us. And he has been tempted on the same level as we know, much more so than we have ever been. And he knows our weaknesses, but still he loved us, and he came to earth to cleanse us and to save us. And now to my final point. Uh, The kingdom is repentance and belief. The kingdom is repentance and belief. And I would turn your attention to the last page of the bulletin, page 7. So I say verse 14 to 15, and that is what is generally called Act 1 in Mark, in this documentary drama. Uh, the good, so point to Galilee, the good news of Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and I've titled it, The Good News of Jesus Proclaimed and Demonstrated. We'll stay in this act for a while. It starts in 1.14 and ends in 8.21. So we'll be in Galilee for quite some time now. The walk through the Bible series takes precedence, so we'll be here in this section for a while. Um, So I want to, but at this point, this uh, section of the book is giving a substantial amount of Jesus' teachings and his healings and his miracles. Um, But the reason I included 14 and 15, which is sort of the next logical part, is because I wanted to give you a foretaste of Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, not to leave you hanging. Without Jesus' first words here in Mark, as well as his mission statement, in a sense, the kingdom is repentance and belief as I've titled it. So, looking at verse 14 in the Bible. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, after John was arrested, we will not get into the arrest of John at this point. We will get into it more later in chapter 6, in a good while. Um, but then Jesus comes to, to Galilee, and here he will spend most of his time 
usually only going out of Galilee to go to Jerusalem for some some appointed feasts and uh, um, or other small trips around that area. And according to an ancient Jewish historian, Josephus, Galilee has around 200 villages with about 15,000 people. So that's about 3 million people in that area. So it's no small place in the outbush somewhere. It's a major hub. And Jesus is spending most of his time in that area. And we come here to to Jesus' mission statement. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus preached and brought the message of God's rule, though not in the way many suspected, as earlier talked about. The people were looking for a hero, a military leader who would run out the Romans. But Jesus, uh, a commentator said that about 60% of the sentences in Mark starts with a uh, contradictory word such as but or now or this is because Mark is contradicting their false beliefs or their misconceptions. The people expected a worldly ruler, but Jesus came preaching, healing, and teaching the kingdom. And I would venture to say also that Jesus taught first and foremost before miracles and healings. So the most important thing is the teachings of Jesus showed and uh, approved in a sense by God by showing his healings and miracles. The kingdom is at hand. It is close as as close to you as your hand. The time is fulfilled. There are two words in biblical Greek that can be translated as time. It's chronos, meaning time. It's the chronological way of looking at time, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, January, February. And there's the other word kairos, meaning more a specific time, more the decisive time, or the definite time, like now. This is special, this is important. So Jesus here uses kairos. The time is now. Now, on this very moment, the kingdom of God is here. So repent, therefore. That is the way of entering the kingdom of God, by repentance. Repenting is not necessarily a feeling or an emotion, although those can be right and true at their own times, but and they're at their kairoses, their due times. But repenting is first and foremost an action, a change of heart, so to say. And I feel I need to say this here. Repentance is not a life of perfection, but it's a life where you change direction. And let me say that once more to make sure that you get it, because we do not hold to uh, that we can be perfect in this life, and we do not hold the standard to perfection because we can never reach it. Repentance is not a life of perfection, but it's a life where you change direction. God does not judge us on how, where we are in life or how long we have gone one road or another, if you see what I mean here. Uh, it's not that we would need to reach the place of sinlessness before he would accept us, but we do need to, work, to wor- uh, walk toward it. Turn from your wicked ways and live, as the Bible says, or as we learned in the sermon in Deuteronomy that Matt just now had, choose life 
that you might live. The time is now. Choose life. Repent. The time is now. The gospel is ultimately about the kingdom of God invading earth in the embodiment of Jesus Christ, displayed in his incarnation, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And how I look forward to see what Mark will show us in this regard. So friends, as I said, the kingdom of God is repentance and belief. The time is now. Both repentance and belief are gifts of God, of God's grace and mercy to us. The kingdom was at hand then and is close now, as close as it was then, as close as it is at hand. So let us now gather our hands and pray.